I'm Ezra Levan. It's May 14th, and you're watching Battleground. Sorry we're a couple of minutes late. That's how it is in live TV. Unlike our produced shows at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, great to see you again. It's May 14th, which happens to be the Independence Day for the State of Israel, and it's also the day that Donald Trump chose to officially uh, you know, commemorate or lay the cornerstone, in fact, of the new U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, the capital of the modern State of Israel and the eternal capital of the Jewish people since biblical times. You know, it's a, a striking, groundbreaking, momentous event, but it really shouldn't be. I mean, why is it strange that you have your embassy in the capital city of a foreign country where they say their capital city is? In no other country in the world would we reject their choice of the capital in, in favor of an, of an enemy's choice. The Capitol, and that's really what it was. Uh, I should know, I'm going to play you some clips from that today. We're going to talk about a few other things, including a great video from Brazil of a woman using her own handgun, concealed carry, to stop a would be robber. It's just a great video. It's only about 10 seconds long, but I got to show it to you at least twice. Uh, we, I want to talk also about John Kerry. Well, Donald Trump is busy moving the embassy to Jerusalem in Israel. Uh, John Kerry is busy meeting with uh, an enemy of the West, namely the uh, senior diplomats of the Islamic Republic of Iran, desperately trying to salvage Iran's position against Donald Trump's changes there. Also have some information on the latest from the religion of peace. A gun, sorry, a knife man in uh, Paris stabs a bunch of folks, kills one before being shot by police, shouting Allah Akbar. Uh, the uh, various media, though, they, they're still hunting for the reason uh, why he could have done what he did. And, of course, we'll wrap up, as we often do, with Teen Vogue, which is my favorite go-to for, uh, for politics. But without further ado, let me start by playing. Uh, we've got, a, I think, one or two clips. Here is an image from Donald Trump. He was not there in person in Jerusalem, opening the, or, I don't know, ribbon-cutting, a foundation stone, an official, an official thing for moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Almost immediately after declaring statehood in 1948, Israel designated the city of Jerusalem as its capital, the capital the Jewish people established in ancient times. So important. Today, Jerusalem is the seat of Israel's government. It is the home of the Israeli legislature and the Israeli Supreme Court and Israel's prime minister and president. Israel is a sovereign nation with the right, like every other sovereign nation, to determine its own capital. Yet, for many years, we failed to acknowledge the obvious, the plain reality that Israel's capital is Jerusalem. On December 6, 2017, at my direction, the United States finally and officially recognized Jerusalem as the true capital of Israel. Pretty obvious. I mean, you put your embassy where the other country's capital is, as Trump most uh, matter-of-factly said, that's where the legislature is, the Knesset, that's where the Supreme Court is, that's where the prime minister and president is. I should say, while this is regarded as a breakthrough, and I suppose it is, um, presidents going back decades have all promised that they would do this too, including, I should mention, Barack Hussein Obama. He promised to move the embassy. It's sort of a tradition when you're in fundraising and campaigning mode, <laughs> promise uh, to move your embassy. That's, it goes over well with Jewish donors and with the Christian Zionists and, and allies of Israel who are neither Jewish nor Zionists as Christians. 
Um, but then just uh, bring in what was called a waiver and say, well, you know what, there's, there's very, very tense and very sensitive diplomatic moves afoot, so we can't do that. Well, Donald Trump isn't much for sensitive diplomatic and bureaucratic things, so he's the first candidate to actually live up to that pledge. And it was so interesting how little the sky fell. It's like when Donald Trump withdrew the United States from the UN global warming scheme, uh, the Paris Agreement. Nothing happened. Nothing went wrong. There were no riots in the streets. Uh, even in the Middle East, no one really cared. Uh, I mean, yes, the Hamas-run Gaza Strip has some protests with some riots, some shots, some missiles, but they always do that. There has been no third intifada. There has been no war. No one cares. And it shows just how timid and foolish the establishment consensus has been. Donald Trump smashed that consensus just as he smashed the consensus on the right way to deal with North Korea and is doing with Iran. I want to show you a little bit from Benjamin Netanyahu. He is the prime minister of Israel, and here's what he said on today, that momentous day. What a glorious day. Remember this moment. This is history. President Trump, by recognizing history, you have made history. Uh, there were a lot of Americans there. Uh, Donald Trump himself was not. He has other things to do. The Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, was not. He has other things to do, probably related to Iran or North Korea. Uh, the Deputy Secretary of State was there, and of course, Jared and Ivanka Trump, who themselves are Jewish, by the way, so they probably had a personal connection. There were a lot of congressional and uh, you know, delegates there, politicians who are either supporters of Israel or, or have big Jewish... Uh, constituencies. But look at this headline in Breitbart, and I've seen this confirmed in various other stories as well. Uh, not a single Democrat attended the event. Democrats are a no-show for Jerusalem embassy move. I thought, can that possibly be true? That's written by our friend Joel Pollack. And I saw it from other sources, and I just find it almost impossible to, to believe because, of course, historically, Democrats are the party of, of Jews, the same way they're the party of blacks and other minorities. And surely, um, if you're in sync with the Jewish people, if you care about the Jewish people, you care about Israel, either for American reasons or Jewish reasons or Israeli reasons, you're going to go to the unveiling of the cornerstone for the embassy in Jerusalem. I mean, what's that really got to do with, with partisan strife? Well, it's got a lot to do. Where is Chuck Schumer, uh, the Jewish senator from New York, who obviously has an enormous Jewish population. Where are Democrats from Florida, from California, from Chicago, from Atlanta? Uh, there are a, a number of districts. I don't think there's any district in the United States that is majority Jewish. But you got almost a million Jews in New York City alone. Where, where are the senior Democrats? Where's Bill de Blasio? Well, I think it's a statement that the Democrat Party is no longer for the Jews. Strangely, American Jews are still for the Democrats. I asked Joel Pollack about that on the show. I said, he was reporting to me, and I saw this report elsewhere, of just how Trump, uh, Trump mania has gripped Israel. There's banners, there's posters. The uh, professional soccer team uh, in Israel has renamed itself the Trump Squad. They've actually changed the name of their version of Manchester United or whatever to add the word Trump to it. That's how Trump mania has taken over the country. Um, it's not just this embassy move, which is symbolic, but it's also the Iran thing. 
Israeli Jews love Trump, but so far, uh, U.S. Jews are loving the Democrats. Uh, Joel Pollack explained that, saying that people who are nominally or ethnically Jewish likely have other identities that are more primary to them and issues that are more primary to them than being Jewish or support for Israel, gun control, abortion. Basically, most American Jews are more liberal than they are Jewish. Um, I've seen so many Jews who reflexively are anti-Trump and they find some weird excuseology for not supporting him, even though he is by far the most pro-Israel president in memory. I suppose since uh, the state of Israel was created in the first place by, uh, was it Roosevelt or was it Truman? Anyways, uh, what are we doing here? Just to catch up, we started a couple minutes late today. It's 12.11. Every weekday, we're still trying it out because, you know, the numbers are not there. And I see in the comments, people are not getting the notifications that they are supposed to get from YouTube. We have over 900,000 YouTube subscribers, but a lot of people are saying they're not getting the little alert bell that we have this daily chat show. We're trying to fix that. We are also planning, we've decided to add a Facebook live stream and a Periscope live stream. So hopefully we'll triple our audience. I think it's fun. I like sitting down here for an hour and kibitzing and taking some comments and running some clips without a lot of preparation. It's loosey-goosey. It's just a fun hour from 12 to 1 Eastern. And then I do my proper show at 8 p.m. Um, and let me just explain briefly the comments. There's a lot of comments going on the screen here. Um, I see them out of the corner of my eye, but of course I'm looking at the camera. Uh, and I do on Friday, we really get a lot of the comments. And if you want your comment to stand out, Google has something called Super Chat, which you chip in two bucks, three bucks, five bucks. The other day, someone put in 50 bucks. Uh, there's one right there, Chaz1422. And you can see, did you see that, what just happened there? So Chaz1422 uh, for 20 bucks. Thank you very much. That comment is in a bright highlight. So I'm looking here, but I see it out of the corner of my eye. I don't see a comment attached to it, Chaz, if you want to add one in or read it. So what does that do? Well, number one, it's it's financial support for the Rebel. I appreciate that. We're 100% user supported. We don't get any government money, unlike most of our competitors. Um, and number two, it's fun. It's fun. I, I, your comment will stick out, and I'll be sure to read it. Whether it's friendly or critical, I'll read it either way. So that's what Super Chat means. Um, we also uh, try and get a few video clips through, and we have a few house ads, I call them, uh, just as for what we're doing. Uh, in fact, um, why don't we do that? Because today is, I should just tell you, today is the last day for early bird pricing for our Rebel Live event in Toronto. Obviously, we have a lot of viewers around the world. Thank you very much for that support. Uh, we're headquartered here in Toronto, Canada. And last year, we had about, I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred people, I forget the number, who attended our one-day CPAC-style conservative conference in Canada. Let me show a little ad for this year's, but it mainly features clips from last year's. And you might recognize Jordan Peterson before his Big Shot book came out, and Doug Ford before we throw the clip. I just want to tell you, I saw over the weekend that Jordan Peterson spoke to a sellout crowd uh, in London, England, at the Apollo Hammersmith Theater, which holds 5,000 you're selling out a theater with 5,000 people. There are real rock bands that can't even fill 5,000 people. I mean, obviously, your absolute A-list pop stars are going to sell out 5,000. They'll sell out a stadium of 30, 40, 50,000. But for a professor who's written a fairly academic book of philosophy to sell 5,000 seats, that is a rock star. Anyways. 
that's uh, Jordan Peterson. I was just thinking about him because he was at our Rebel Live event this year. Uh, Professor Peterson is not going to be in town on uh, June 2nd, but uh, Lindsay Shepard, who you might say is a disciple or inspired by him. Let me uh, play for you our Rebel Live app. We're going to discuss topics that the political elites and the media party don't want us to discuss. Political correctness be damned. Perhaps we are in better touch with the pulse of the country. We are in this fight with you, and you're all in this fight together. If you see over the last few years, there's been this populist movement going around the world. status of the left at this point is, I don't know if you're the Onion or the New York Times. Postmodernism is a sophisticated philosophy. Now, it's wrong, but it, it's deeply wrong. We're simply people with another point of view. We call it The Rebel Live. It's at therebellive.com. Uh, you can go there for ticket information. My point is today is the last day for those early bird prices. Um, I just want to say I see that Chaz1422 has put up his uh, comment, which is the Jews who are Democrats cannot be seen supporting borders in Israel because it will appear hypocritical for their condemn condemnation of our own borders. There's something to that, uh, that Jewish leftists who have an ethnic pride, a residual vestigial pride in being Jews, uh, accept Israel as a Jewish state, which is, that's what it's called. It's called the Jewish state. Their flag is the symbol of Judaism, uh, the star of David. Uh, there is a Jewish character to the country. Um, other religions have legal rights. In fact, I put it to you that Muslims uh, in Israel have more civil rights than they do in any other Muslim country. Um, but it is a, it's an ethnic state. It's an ethnic nationalist state. It is that Zionism is a form of ethnic nationalism, even more than religious nationalism. It's not a theocracy, but it's a, it's an ethnic democracy. And you're right. I, I've been mean, I've been thinking about this for more than a year doing a video called Jews for Borders, because as a Jew, I believe in borders for Israel, but I believe in them for the United States and for Canada too. What makes the United States and Canada and Britain and Germany and Sweden great is the, is the nature of those countries. And you can't swamp, you can't swamp those country with, with people who don't share those values. Uh, obviously Canada and the United States have been settled, they've been colonized, settled, and have had immigration. Uh, in a way that indigenous countries like the UK and, the, and Germany have not. But you need to, you need to, if you want to keep the characteristics of your country, you have to make sure that anyone who comes into your country shares those characteristics. Israel, this is a life and death situation. If you simply allowed anyone who wants to come to Israel to come, uh, the Jewish fact of Israel would be erased within years. That's sort of obvious. Uh, we're talking about the Middle East a lot because, of course, today is the historical Independence Day of Israel. What a momentous occasion for the Israeli embassy move. I noticed that some other small countries are deciding to move their embassies as well. 
some small Latin American countries. I can't even remain. There's some little, really little countries that um, that are, are almost, uh, you know, mini countries on the 200 countries in the world. I'd say that fewer than 10 have gone along with it. But as Joel Polk reminded us the other day when he reported to us from Jerusalem, uh, even the even Russia, the Russian Federation, now refers to Israel as West Jerusalem as its capital. So, uh, you know, they're reserving some questions about the final status of East Jerusalem, but even Russia is, uh, is acknowledging this. Um, so while Donald Trump remakes the world, uh, looks like he might well bring peace to the Korean Peninsula for the first time in, what, 80, 70 years, um, is making changes in the Middle East and the supposed third rails of the region. Oh, you can't, you can't put anything ahead of the Palestinians. You can't move the embassy. He's just doing it. Nothing bad is happening. John Kerry, the former Secretary of State uh, in Bill Clinton's second, sorry, in Barack Obama's second term, he is meeting furiously with Iranian senior politicians. And when I say politicians, they're, they're dictators. Of course, it's not a free country. Let me show you. Um, someone was in Paris and just happened to be sitting near, look at this, I want to read this. Hold this up on the screen. So John Kerry just left a meeting at L'Avenue in Paris with three Iranians, Iranians. A friend was sitting next to their table and heard John Kerry blasting real Donald Trump. The Iranians had a five-person security detail and left in diplomatic vehicles. Is he F-A-R-A? I think that's foreign uh, agent something, something registered. So, and there's a picture of John Kerry walking away. So this is someone who just happened to be in Paris and saw John Kerry meeting with a bunch of Iranian officials. And how, were, how did he know they were officials? Well, they had security and cars. And there's Kerry walking away. And there's one more, there's some more images, but put the next one up, please. So someone in Paris saw the man, and this is, the, it looks like they're coming into a hotel, and ID'd them. Let me read this. The one in front is certainly Kamal Karazai, Iran regime's foreign minister from 1997 to 2005. The one behind the door looks very similar to Albul Ghassem Delphi, current ambassador to France. That would make sense. See photos for comparison. Please bear in mind these people aren't diplomats. They're diplomat terrorists. Okay, that last point is certainly a strong opinion, but there's some truth to it. I don't think these individual men themselves uh, would you know, be pulling the trigger or the detonator on a bomb. But of course, Iran is the world's largest sponsor, state sponsor of terrorism. That's unquestionable. They are colonizing Syria. They use Hezbollah as a proxy. They've bombed places around the world, including in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Um, that's a given. I mean, it's given that anyone who is negotiating with Iran now uh, in, you know, unauthorized negotiations in Paris in 2018 or authorized negotiations during the entire Obama regime under Kerry and Hillary Clinton form. Of course they were dealing with a terrorist state. What's interesting today is not that Iran's a terrorist state, we know that. What's interesting is that even as Donald Trump has changed course on Iran, has said he's pulling out of Obama's deal with Iran, as he's moving to bring sanctions back, that John Kerry is actively undermining U.S. foreign policy and literally meeting with the enemy in a rogue manner. Now, that's actually subject to a U.S. law called the Logan Act. We had John Cardillo talk about that with us last week, and he did a special of his own show about it. 
My point is, imagine if the shoe was on the other foot. Well, you don't need to imagine when General Flynn, part of Donald Trump's transition team, simply made a phone call to the Russians saying, hey, we're going to be taking office soon. Just want to introduce myself. Don't make any sudden moves. Um, we'll talk to you when we're free. That spurred this whole Mueller, Mueller uh, in inquisition because of a legitimate phone call made in the authorized part of Donald Trump's transition campaign. Whereas here you have John Kerry deliberately being contrary to America's interests with legal impunity. But of course, he's a Democrat. All right, it is 1223. I'm going to take a, another qu uh, comment or two, but I do have three more things I want to show you, including a great video from uh, taken from security cameras in Brazil. Uh, let's just look at some of the comments. Uh, Spencer J. Ezra heard a terrorist was found not guilty in Toronto because of mental illness attack on a recruitment center. Yeah, I saw that too. Um, and it could be true. It could be true. Look, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist. I have not in, uh, examined that terrorist myself. But it uh, and I, am, I have no doubt that there is mental illness. Um, but, but it's not just mental illness. It's mental illness combined with jihad. Because, if he, he, of course, he walked into a Canadian military recruitment center looking to kill. Uh, so maybe it was mental illness that took away any self-control, but it was jihad that gave him the battle plan. Um, so I, 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 th I think we ought to be careful about simply labeling any jihadist attack crazy because only a crazy person would do it. That's sort of like the Soviet idea that, no, no, we don't have any crime. We just have people who are mentally ill. Well, how do you say that? Well, because to commit a crime, you've got to be crazy. So therefore, you are mentally ill. We don't want to get into a circular reasoning where, well, this attack is so crazy, they must be crazy because only a crazy person doesn't attack because that was our premise. So it's a circular reasoning. Uh, he may have been mentally ill, but I, I don't think we should use that as a catch-all because I think that helps us avoid, that's an excuse to avoid, the pathology of the jihadist movement itself. Um, speaking of terrorists, unfortunately, there was a terrorist attack again in Paris. Hundreds of Frenchmen have been killed in the last five years, um, not just in the Bataclan shootings, but one of the most horrific attacks was an ISIS terrorist who got behind the wheel of a very large truck in Nice, France, on their Independence Day, the Bastille Day. And all the roads were shut down because it was like everyone was gathered along the roads for this celebration. So everyone was lined up perfectly. It's a couple of years ago. And this terrorist got behind the wheel of a truck, and not just like a little pickup truck or a half ton, but a, almost like a semi-truck, like a truck with a lot of power and momentum. And he barreled down for miles. And he murdered more than 80 people and injured more than 400. So he murdered or wounded close to five hundred people with his truck before he was finally stopped because he was just barreling down this road it was like a bowling ball knocking down pin after pin after pin but a bowling ball with an enormous diesel engine in it 500 people killed or wounded in one incident that's like taking out an airliner so yeah another attack uh i think we have some video on that is uh, do we have video or just the article just the article. Here we have it. Here, Paris attack knife man kills one before being shot by police. Let me read a little bit. A knife man has killed one person and wounded four in a suspected terror attack in central Paris, French officials say. The attacker was then shot dead by police. In the opera district, witnesses say they heard him shout, Allah, 
Akbar, so-called Islamic State, later said one of its soldiers had carried out the attack on Saturday evening. Well, uh, what's so interesting here, I think this is BBC, uh, that they actually use the word terror because like our own state broadcaster in Canada, they typically don't say that word. I guess this hasn't been through the editor yet. Um, what's so frustrating about this and so typical is that they knew about this guy. They knew about him in advance. I've shown you headlines before from the UK that say 23,000 jihadists are walking around the UK uh, on a watch list. You can't watch 23,000 people. And uh, I think it was 3,000 or 7,000 to be watched around the clock. You know how many... You know how many police it takes to watch someone around the clock? It takes dozens because you've got, what, three shifts a day um, and, and you have to have managers and track them. Like, it, it, it takes dozens of cops to watch one person around the clock. And why are they doing that? What, what, watching and just, and then watch them do the attack? Yeah, we were watching them. Well, we don't need a watch list. We need a stop list. And, and let me show you this story. Um, Maybe this headline, this is uh, about this suspect. France defends anti-terrorism strategy after attack by man on watch list. The French government defended its anti-terrorism measures over the weekend after it turned out that the perpetrator of a deadly knife attack in Paris was on a state security watch list. I'll just read one more sentence. Government spokesman Benjamin something something said the man a naturalized french citizen who was born in chechnya had been on the watch list since 2016. okay well chechnya is pretty much about as terroristy a place as it gets first of all what's he doing in the uk in, in france there's no connection to france i mean i understand why some muslim migrants would come from morocco algeria tunisia these were french colonies they actually speak French there, and France made them part of the French Empire. So I can at least understand a historical, geographic, and, and linguistic connection. But why are you bringing in someone from Chechnya? You know where Chechnya is? It's in the bowels of Russia. It's also one of the worst places in the world. I mean, Grozny and the Islamic character of the Civil War there, it's, it's as horrific as anything in Syria. Why was he in France to begin with? And second of all, if he's on your watch list for two years, why? Why? Well, what did he do to put you and put him on that watch list? And why wasn't that enough to kick him out? This is where we're going in North America, by the way. All right, let's take a quick look at the clock. It's 12.29. I started a minute late today. Sorry about that. Um, I want to play for you our second ad. Oh, I've got some good news. Uh, do we have that second ad for the for the uh, SaveTheChristians.com? Let's play it anyways. Um, take a look at this, and then I got some news for you. Take a look. I 
قالوا تسلمون تشترون الاسلام مش الباب ولا او الرحمن I was just looking at uh, our signups. In fact, uh, we've had four more people sign up just in the course of the show for the rebellive.com. Today is the last day to get your early bird pricing. It's going to be great. So I was talking about the last ad. We have these house ads. I hope you don't mind the fact that we play them every day. Um, here's my news about the savethechristians.com. It is now available on DVD and video on demand. So you can rent it. Um, online uh, for, I think it's six or seven bucks, or you can uh, pre-order the DVDs and we'll ship them to you if you're old school that way. That is our first rebel documentary, and we made it after visiting Iraq, northern Iraq, the region called Kurdistan, which is where the Christians in Iraq fled, because it's pretty rough to be a Christian over there. Um, lots of interviews with actual Christian victims of ISIS ethnic cleansing. It's terrifying. Uh, the video we had, of course, the... Um, uh, premieres in Toronto and Calgary, and I'm delighted that it is now available everywhere. I see a super chat from Mark B for two bucks. Thanks for that. Um, so yeah, that was an important uh, thing we did, I think, to shine a light of scrutiny on the treatment of Christians in Iraq. I think it's probably the most underreported story in the Western media right now. I think it's very depressing. I um, Listen, the Jews are being pushed around and kicked around, and that's why having a Jewish state of Israel is important. It's sort of a place where they're a majority and they army and they can defend themselves and they're not at the mercy of being a minority perpetually in other people's countries. Um, the Kurds have no such luck. Uh, they are a majority in Kurdistan, but that's part of Iraq. But the Christians in Iraq are the worst off of all because other than little pinprick-sized towns and villages in Iraq that are 100% Christian, there's no such thing as a multicultural or multi-ethnic uh, town in northern there's a Christian town and a Muslim town. I suppose they could have one town where you have a Christian half and a Muslim half, but it's not like in North America where on the same street you could have five religions, five races, five ethnicities. It's, it's not that way. It's just not that way in Iraq. And my point is you go to these little Christian enclaves, some of which are over a 1,000 years old. I mean, these folks, they still pray in Aramaic, the ancient language of, of Jesus. Uh, they're, this is, I mean, these are ancient Christians. But there's just, what, maybe maybe a couple hundred thousand left in all of Iraq. So there's no contiguous area. So every single place they are, they're a perpetual minority always. And yes, yeah, sometimes it's less brutal than others, but it's always brutal. I think I might have told you this story before when we visited the Christian town of Batnaya or Telescope. We visit, visit a lot of Karakash, Batnaya, Telescope. We visited a lot of these little Christian towns. The one we were in, in July last year had been liberated from ISIS, but it had not been lived, repopulated by Christians yet. So we were there in July when it was liberated. We were the only Western journalists in there. We were the only people at all in the town. We had to go in with security. In October, that same Christian town that was liberated 
was reconquered this time by an Iran-backed Muslim militia called Hashtel Shari. And, and that goes to my point. At least Israel, they've got this place to make a stand. You got, what, 8 million Israelis, of whom, what, 6 million are Jews. They got a place, they got an army, they got an air force, they got a place. But the Christians in Iraq, I have to say, they do not have a bright future. And frankly, my view is if we're going to be taking refugees, take the Christians, take the ones who are actually being persecuted. There is no genocide against Muslims in the world. And I don't think there ought to be. There is not. And God forbid, even if there were, there's dozens of Muslim-majority countries in which they can seek refuge. There is no country for Christian Arabs. I mean, Lebanon has a bit of a Christian community left, but a lot of them have, have fleed since uh, Iran has colonized, colonized that country through Hezbollah. Anyway, that's a very long tangent on, uh, on the question of our um, documentary, but I just wanted you to see that because I was excited that it's finally viewable. Uh, I just have an email here. I missed a super chat. Mark B says, hey, Ezra, I spoke with Doug Ford on the phone Thursday. He said he would call you to discuss your perspective on his actions regarding Tanya Granagallon. Has he phoned you yet? No, he has not. Uh, there's a chance that I missed his phone call, um, but I will check my voicemails. I have not. Let me tell you, let me speak very clearly about Doug Ford. Uh, as you saw, he was a, a guest speaker at our Rebel Live last year. Uh, I support Doug Ford. I want him to be premier. I think he'll be a good premier. I think a fence post would be better than Kathleen Wynne and Doug Ford will actually be positively good. I, I guess I'm saying anyone is better than Kathleen Wynne. I'm not going to say the NDP is better than Kathleen Wynne because what we've seen in Alberta and in BC now proves that the NDP can actually make any situation worse. But Doug Ford will be a good premier. The question is how good? Will he be principled? Or will he be a bit of a Patrick Brown sellout? And I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about Doug Ford. I want him to be strong as a conservative. I want him to also be democratic. But most importantly, I want him to maintain his healthy distrust and disrespect of the mainstream media. Because uh, when you are afraid of the mainstream media, especially of the CBC, then an interview is no longer about your views. It's about the CBC conditioning and shaping you. It's sort of like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. You know what that is? It's, um, it's like if you, if you have a drawer with a dice in it and you want to see, well, what what's the numbers on the dice, and you pull the drawer open to check it, well, the dice have moved around. So you, it's an un, you can never actually measure something without changing it, is Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. That's a, a quantum physics concept. But I think it applies to journalism, too, in the case of the CBC. When the CBC asks you a question, Doug Ford, will you disavow this candidate? It's not a measurement. Do you see what I mean? It's not actually reporting. It's trying to pressure Doug Ford to give an answer. When the CBC calls you with a gotcha question, they're not actually doing reporting, they're doing conditioning, they're shaping the battlefield for their Liberal Party masters. And it's very tempting for a conservative politician, Doug Ford, Andrew Scheer, Jason Kenney, to say, this is not reporting, this is bullying, and I don't like it, and so I'm gonna join the mob and go after Tanya Granick Allen, or the rebel, or carbon tax protesters who chant lock her up. Do you see what I'm saying? And my favorite moments of Doug Ford are when he disrespects the media like his brother Rob did so well. And I hope he comes back to that. Um, all right. Let me check the time. It's 1238. I've been kibitzing. We're two-thirds done. I want to show you two more stories. Let's first do a, a, a short video. I don't know if you saw this. 
This is a closed circuit TV uh, vid from Brazil. I don't think there's any sound on it. Why don't you put it up and I'll just talk over it. Okay, so there's a guy that's outside of school. You see there's a gunman and look who's, and look who comes up and just pop, pop, pop. Just pop, 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 down he goes. Down he goes and look at that gal. Kick and he, and takes his gun. She's smart. She's smart. Takes his gun away and he's down there and he raises his hand as if to say, please don't hurt me. And she's right on top of him. And, and let's watch it again. There he is. He's coming up with a gun. He's looking to do a robbery. And there's other mums there. You see that? You see that mom with the pink? But this, this mom just pop, pop, pop. She shot him down. I want you to play it one more time because I want you to see the mom and daughter scurrying away at the top. This gal is so great. Cool as a cucumber, eh? I mean, I'm, I bet her heart was just pounding, but she knew what she was doing. I want to, okay, so look at that mom who's now going to grab her girl. Grab the girl. You see that in the top right? Grab the girl and run away while the, the lady with the handgun pop, pop, pop. Am I enjoying watching this too much? I'll confess it. Not because I like pain or violence, but the opposite. This thug was trying to rob these people. I think this was outside of school. And boy, he did not expect a mom to be packing heat. Okay, we'll watch it just this one more time. There's so much going on. There's so and look at pop, pop, right in her purse. And then she backs away and then comes back because she's not scared. And you see the gun there, and then she goes away, kicks it away. Yeah, she kicks it away. I actually read that she might have been an off-duty cop who's also a mom. It wouldn't surprise me because I think she reacted in a manner that suggested training kicking the gun away, pulling the gun away, uh, and just the presence of mind not to flee. Of course, I obviously don't blame the mom who fled with her daughter uh, when things started going down. Um, what is a gun? I mean, it's a weapon, it's a tool. But if you look at it philosophy, philosophically, I think it's a great equalizer. Um, had no one there had a gun, if no one had a gun, who would have won that altercation? Well, the thug, because biologically speaking, a young man, he looked like he was in his early 20s, is just plain old stronger than moms, especially moms who have to care for their little ones. So if it was just fists, that young man would have won. Now, he had a gun, which obviously is an extra degree of menace, and it's also a symbol. It saves him from having to use his fists. He just waves the gun around, and it's his way of saying, not only will I punch you, I will kill you, so give me your money, as he started to do. And he would cut through there like a hot knife through butter, and none of those women would be able to do anything. Even if one of them were physically strong enough, or a group of them were physically strong enough, they surely wouldn't risk being shot. But one of the moms had a great equalizer. She didn't look like she was as tall as him. She didn't look like she was as strong as him. But she had that gun on her, I think it was in her, in her bag, her purse, and that was the great equalizer. And so he, instead of him surprising the women, oh boy, she had a surprise for him. So he revealed himself, and then she used the element of surprise, the great equalizer, didn't kill him, looked like it just stunned him and hurt him. And he was, I didn't see a lot of blood. There was a very quick clip, and he was still moving around a little bit. So, I mean, it obviously wasn't a, one of those huge firearms that has massive kickback. I mean, there are 
firearms that are more suited to a, a smaller person like a mom might be. But it certainly was enough to stop that. I say again, that it's not the violence that I find gleeful there. It's that such an evil man whose evil plans were so soundly and shockingly uh, re refuted and rebuked by a woman with a presence of mind. That's the joy I feel when I watch that. And the admiration for a mom that was truly able to defend her own child, which I didn't see there, maybe she was just picking it up, and others. That woman is a true hero in every sense of the word. And just imagine if she hadn't been there, there would have at least been a robbery. Maybe there would have been a pistol whipping. Maybe there would have been shooting. Maybe there would have been a murder. Maybe they would. I mean, it looked like he was just a, an opportunistic smash and grab type thief. But how many times across the world does a law abiding gun owner with a concealed gun stop a mass shooting? And I can understand by definition, if you stop a mass shooting before it gets to the mass part of the shooting, by definition, that's going to be not as newsworthy as a mass shooting that goes to term. And as our friend Dr. John Lott always tells us, mass shootings always end with a second gun either when a cop finally arrives with a second gun or a private citizen, or if the shooter takes his own life. But um, the longer it takes for that second gun to arrive, the longer the carnage. In this case, a mom happened, happened to be right there. I'm sorry, that is an amazing video. Not because I'm happy to see anyone get shot, but rather I'm happy that an evil man was surprised by the great equalizer that is a firearm. Let me ask you, if no one there had a firearm, of course the strongest bully would su succeed. Or if that woman had not been allowed to carry a firearm, and I presume that she had lawful right to use it, but if she had not, and if she didn't, as they say, when you outlaw guns, only outlaws have guns. I thought that was an inspiring video. And yeah, we showed it to you four times, but I think that's about right. Um, I'm going to take a quick peek. It's 1244. I only have 15 minutes left. Uh, I have one more little thing I want to tell you about. It was uh, Teen Vogue, which is my go-to for political ideology. But let's read a few more comments there. Jason Montgomery says, we can't defend ourselves in Canada at all. It's illegal to hurt the guy who is robbing you. How screwed up is that? Well, not just that. Not just is concealed carry almost impossible to get in Canada. And security guards in Canada are almost always unarmed. Um, but yeah, if you do actually uh, defend yourself, um, you will find yourself facing charges uh, invariably. Invariably. Um... Keith McIntosh says, Mark Stein in his battle with CRTV comments, possible of a Gavin return now. What about Stein's comments? Read the difficulties of the paywall model. I haven't read Mark Stein's comments on the difficulties of the paywall model, uh, but I can imagine that they're difficult. We live with that every day here. Uh, unlike, as I mentioned before, we receive no corporate funding. We, we receive no funding from uh, governments, so we live off the support of our viewers. We do that through a trickle of ad money. We were basically demonetized by Google in January of 2017. Um, as so many conservative sites were that were supportive of Brexit or Donald Trump, YouTube just turned off the money. Um, Facebook's turned off the money in other ways too I won't get into. And Twitter has censored us too. So those big three social media companies. So yeah, it's tough. Uh, I don't know the particular comments you're referring to. In terms of um, Mark Stein versus CRTV, I admire both Mark Stein's journalism and CRTV's uh, uh, the fact that they're trying to make a go of it with conservative media in this country. So I don't feel the need to take a side in that fight. I've known Mark Stein for, oh, I don't know, 
15 years for sure. I mean, he uh, used to write for the Western Standard Magazine. I don't know if uh, some of you remember, but going back as far as 2004, I was the publisher of a magazine called the Western Standard. Mark Stein wrote the back page. I was friends with him back then. We fought the Human Rights Commissions together. On the other hand, I admire what CRTV is doing. Mark Levin is outstanding. Of course, Gavin McInnes is a hoot over there. Your question about uh, Gavin McInnes returning, I think, is most unlikely because, of course, CRTV pays pretty well. Uh, unlike us, they're owned by a billionaire, uh, Kerry Katz, who is pouring his money into a conservative media alternative. And um, I think that's amazing. A lot of people, when they get super rich, their hobbies are yachts or private jets or private islands. Uh, Kerry Katz, Katz has poured tens of millions of dollars into a conservative media outfit. We started The Rebel literally from scratch. We were all laid off from the Sun News Network together, and I took my severance pay, and I used it to pay the first paychecks, and we've been sort of crowdfunding our way ever since. Yeah, if I had 20 million U.S. to put into the Rebel, we'd probably be a little bit bigger and better and stronger than we are now. But hey, we're three and a half years old, and we're still fighting like hell every day, and partly because of the support from folks who super chat us. That's where the money goes. we got a payroll to make here, people, so super chat away. Um, I'll read one more comment, and then I'll go to Teen Vogue. Um, let me find one here. The sharpened pen, murder rate higher in London than in New York City for the first time ever with strict gun control. Who knew you could kill people with knives too? Well, knives and there's huge acid attacks in London. That's the thing, It's it really is people who kill people. I mean, and they'll find a way. Cain and Abel didn't have firearms. Um, Deus Vault says laws only have effect if you follow them or if you feel obliged to follow them, rather. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's already against the law to commit murder. So if someone's decided they're going to commit murder or commit an armed robbery, they're probably going to ignore a paperwork crime like possessing a firearm illegally. Uh, Max Dean says, Katz is countersuing Mark Stein. Look, I'm just not going to get into that quarrel. Um, I'm not a party to it. I admire both sides. And, of course, I believe that we should have harmony on our side of the aisle. It's just not my fight. I, I have too many fights on my own to get into. Um... Maharlika Awa says, hopefully Rebel puts on more breakout stars, but they don't stab Rebel in the back like some of the others. Well, look, we're called the Rebel. We're not called the mainstream. We're not called the calm people. And so it's sort of by definition that the people I like and that are like me are going to be a little bit prickly porcupine sometimes. And um, sometimes if you're a prickly porcupine, you're prickly to friends as well as to foes. And it's true. I mean, if you're boring and if you're always agreeable, you're probably a dream to work with from a human resources point of view. But if you're prickly, if you're a rebel, if you're a troublemaker, if you're a dissident, if you fight, maybe some of that personality comes across in an HR way too. And so I look at the people who got their start with the rebel, and there were a lot of them. I mean, and some of them left us in various ways, but... I still, even the ones who left us in a bit of a puff of smoke over the years, I still have a bit of feelings of sentimental affection for them because we helped launch a number of careers. And by the way, I don't think people should stay at the Rebel forever if they're moving on up. I mean, we're a great place to get started and to learn certain things about um, independent media. And I think it's appropriate for some people who want to go independent. And I keep in touch with some of our alumni. Um, talked about Gavin earlier. I mean, Gavin moved on because he got a great offer that we simply couldn't match. I still talk to Gavin, I don't know, by text or by phone. I 
a few times a month. Um, so yeah, and and I believe that we have had a role as a bit of a talent factory. It's not a talent factory, it's sort of a talent recruiter, you know. Um, and even to this day, we, we do. I mean, and there's also a thing about when you when you find affordable talents, they're a little bit rough around the edges and they're not seasoned. By the time they get seasoned and experienced, well, maybe you can't afford them anymore. Anyways, uh, don't mind me. It's part of the fun of being a startup entrepreneur with not a lot of dough. Uh, and I tell you, on, on the whole, everything considered, including some of the bumps in the road, I love what we've done at the Rebel and I love the legacy that we have already created in our alumni. I'm not saying I agree with everything our alumni say and do, of course not, but uh, we're helping make a fuss. Okay, it's 12.51. We have nine more minutes before we go uh, because I finished at 1 p.m. I got other work to do. I want to I wanna show you something so weird. You know Vogue, right? It's the women's magazine. And there's something called Teen Vogue, which is, I guess, for teenage girls, and that's great. And, you know, teenage girls dating, fashion, makeup, music. Well, no, not these days, because, of course, Teen Vogue is part of the Trump resistance. So check this out. This is uh, from Teen Vogue. You see up there in the top left corner, it says Teen Vogue. And who's that hairy guy? Well, let me read to you. Who is Karl Marx? Meet the anti-capitalist scholar. The communist scholar's ideas are more prevalent than you might realize. Let's read the first sentence. You may have come across communist memes on social media. The man, the meme, the legend behind the trend is Karl Marx, who developed the theory of communism, which advocates for workers' control over their labor instead of their bosses. The political philosopher turned 200 years old on May 5th, but his ideas can still teach us both the past and the present. Really, really. Um, Communism is responsible for, according to scholars, 85 to 100 million deaths over the last century. Uh, the Soviet Union, now is China, Khmer Rouge, North Korea, um, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. Is there some hellhole that does not owe some, a modern hellhole that does not owe its foul ideology to uh, I'm not saying that Nazism was Marxist. It posed itself as counter-Marxism. But Nazi stands for National Socialism. And uh, in economic policies, they were certainly socialists. They were sort of socialists and nationalists. Yet Karl Marx has killed more people through his ideology than, than anyone else. So you have to put the blame for the actual murders at the hands of Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, and Mao. But that's teen... That is Teen Vogue for you. Is there any teenage girl who wants to read that? I don't know. But that's the total infiltration and hijacking of our culture by the hard left. If you are reading an apology, an excuse, a promotion of Karl Marx in Teen Vogue, that's a sign of how far the culture has gone. I see a $20 super chat from Allie Clark. Allie, thanks very much. I remember you. Uh, made some super chats last week, too. It's very generous of you. Ali wrote, keep up the great work, Rebel, a great voice for conservatives. Well, thank you. I mean, I believe we're ideological conservatives. You put conservatives in a capital C, which um, 
may refer to the political party, of course we support conservative political parties, Doug Ford, Jason Kenney, Andrew Scheer. We want them to be to beat their liberal and socialist rivals. But I believe we have a special duty to be good faith critics. And what do I mean by that? Those political parties I just listed have their enemies who are bad faith critics, gotcha critics, who turn molehills into mountains, who are unfair and have double standards, what they excoriate a conservative for, they praise or ignore in a liberal. I'm talking about good faith criticisms, criticisms from the right. Because if you're trying to steer straight, if you're a conservative politician, but a hundred other media are pulling you this way, pulling you this way, the best you can do is stay on course, but any movement's always going to be that way if all the vacuum, if all the suction is this way. But if you have one or many media to your right pulling you this way, it counteracts the pull that way, you can you fly straight. And so any conservative media would say, oh, the rebel, they're a hassle, Doug Ford, Andrew Scheer, Jason Kenney, whoever says, oh, the rebel, I wish they'd just stop criticizing from the right, or, they, or they're our embarrassing cousins because they're so right-wing. Well, look, do you, do you think it's easier to be a politician if you are the most right-wing thing around? No, no, no. I mean, just rhetorically and you know, in terms of positioning politically, if you have someone to your right, then you can say, well, I'm moderate. If you have no one to your right, the same position is no longer moderate, is it? So I, I agree with you that I think we have an important role to play. But of course, our main role is not determined uh, by reference to political parties. It's determined by reference to our viewers. And if we give them the news and opinions they want. It's 1256. I'm going to read a few more comments and then we'll finish up today. Just a reminder of what we're doing here. We're going to add Facebook and uh, Twitter Periscope soon. Um, every day from 12 noon till 1 Eastern, I come on, I kibitz, show some video clips, read some headlines. Friday, we generally take more comments. Uh, for those who want to chip in, you can get your comment put in highlighted ink, like Ellen Clark just did, or you can have them amongst the rest, and I try and skim them. Uh, let me do that for the remaining four minutes. Alex Chappie says, I went to Starbucks and asked for copy reparation, and the clerk left. WTF. Well, Starbucks, uh, because they're such social justice warriors to the world, uh, they've sort of ensnared themselves, haven't they? Um, because some people complained that they weren't allowed to use Starbucks bathroom because they didn't, they weren't paying customers, and that was racist. Starbucks has now announced that all of their bathrooms are now public bathrooms for the public. So you got your free Wi-Fi and your free bathrooms. Gee, what could go wrong, eh? The sharpened pen, 20 bucks. Thank you very much. I'll keep my eye peeled if I see a comment associated with your super chat. Thanks. But um, I, I think most uh, most people uh, will not abuse Starbucks bathroom privileges. Uh, most people will sort of be grateful for it. And who knows, maybe someone going into a Starbucks to use the bathroom will feel some sort of moral obligation to buy something when they're in there. But of course, all it takes is one hobo who says, uh, yeah, free bathroom. I'm going to use that for a whole bunch of things. And how can they be kicked out now? Because the CEO himself, such a leftist poser, has said, free bathrooms, free Wi-Fi. Uh, Victoria Pisano has a super chat for 10 bucks. Thanks very much. I can never understand the constant beef against Jews. Is it their success, land, religion? Well, listen, I suppose there's many reasons that people are against Jews. The same thing uh, could be for other prejudices. Um, some of it is ancient and cultural. Some of it is religious. 
Some is people just need a scapegoat. Some people just had a bad experience with some Jews. I can, there was something that happened over the weekend, and let me close. I'll, I'll do something on this tomorrow, maybe. There's a, a Jewish, a very old Jewish uh, paper out of New York called The Forward. In fact, it used to be in Yiddish. It used to be published in Yiddish in New York. Obviously, it was always left-wing, um, but it's become insanely left-wing in recent years. Uh, the Daily Forward, it's called. It's a website now, too, and they are so left-wing. They're actually anti-Israel. If you can imagine, they're pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas, anti-Israel, really, really gross and weird. Uh, they did a profile on Jordan Peterson, who what I, would, I would call a philo-Semite. I know Jordan Peterson somewhat, and I know those around him, and there's not an anti-Semitic bone in his body. It's absurd to say so. In fact, he gives extended lectures on the Old Testament. Uh, I actually spoke on a panel with him about the 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, which created the modern state of Israel. Like, to call him anti-Semitic is insane. But the Daily Forward did. They smeared him, and they photoshopped. Can we call it up in the few seconds we have left? Uh, if you go to the... Uh, the Jewish Daily Forward. I don't know if we can find it. We only have one minute left. Um, they photoshopped a picture of him with Adolf Hitler giving the Sieg Heil, and they said that he is enabling anti-Semites. They forged that picture because, of course, Peterson has never posed in front of such a picture. And here's, here's my point. It's a long answer to your question, Victoria. If you have a group of far left-wing activists, liberals, who just happen to be Jews, but are about as Jewish as a ham sandwich. There's nothing Jewish about them other than a vestigial history, a, a, an echo, a memory. I mean, they don't go to synagogue. They don't believe in the Torah. They're not Zionists. Like, the only thing Jewish about them is they were born Jewish and they have a Jewish name, but they're liberal. They know that. So if their only use for being liberal is to play the, for being Jewish, rather, is to play the Jewish card as a racist card, which is what they did to Jordan Peterson. They thought, well, we'll make an attack on Jordan Peterson that no leftist has done before because, yeah, go ahead and put it up if you got it. Um, yeah, you see that? Is Jordan Peterson enabling Jew hatred? And on Twitter, those words weren't there. You just saw the Sieg Heil there. It was as if he's, he spoke in front. It's just super, super, super gross. Uh, this is actually taken from the website called vdare.com. I guess that's the quickest place our producers found it. Um, but, yeah, that's the graphic I'm talking about there. So if you're, I mean, Jordan Peterson knows that that was just radical leftists using their Jewish identity to make an attack. But let's say that attack would actually work and get someone marginalized. So a group of liberals got you sacked from your job for anti-Semitism when you're not an anti-Semite. And they did it in the name of the Jews. How are you not going to hate Jews because of that? I'm not saying it's fair, but I'm saying it's understandable if someone is attacking you unfairly in the name of the Jews as was just done to Jordan Peterson. And let's say, God forbid, Peterson lost his job or his career over that. How could he not have some animus towards the Jews, since those who attacked him did it in the name of the Jews? I want to get into this in greater length uh, in a future show, because it's 101 already, so I have to sign off. Um, I am going to go now because i got to get to other things. I'll see you back here tomorrow at 12 noon Eastern. We're going to try and fix our notification system. Thanks to all of you who chipped in with the Super Chat. I appreciate that. Uh, until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, tune in tonight at 8 p.m. if you can for our show. And if not, I'll see you tomorrow at noon, same time, same YouTube channel. Good night.